Welcome to the Wheats on Your Mind podcast. My name is Aaron Harries. Wheats on Your Mind is brought to you by the Kansas Wheat Commission and Kansas Association of Wheat Growers. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover in the future or have a question for one of our guests, please email us at podcast at kswheat.com. Probably no year holds more significance to the wheat industry in Kansas than 1874. That was the year Mennonite immigrants from the Ukraine came to Kansas to escape their loss of religious freedom. They came at the invitation of the state of Kansas and the Santa Fe Railroad to develop the prairie into a rich and productive agricultural economy. These groups of families brought with them turkey red winter wheat, and as they say, the rest is history. But there is so much more to this story, and thankfully our guests decided to write a book about the topic. The author of the book, Leave No Threshing Stone Unturned, Glenn Ediger, is our guest on this episode of the podcast. Glenn is a retired director of design at Vornado Air for 30 years. He was involved in the design, engineering, and development of Vornado products since 1985. But Glenn is also an inventor, design consultant, blogger, land speed car designer, museum curator, and author. Born on a wheat farm in western Harvey County and has lived in Harvey County his whole life, his education took place at Bueller High School and Bethel College. Currently lives with his wife, Karen, north of Newton, Kansas. Glenn, welcome. I don't have a book club, but if I did, this book would be required reading. Everyone with an interest in the story of Wheaton, Kansas, should read this. It all starts with the Mennonites. The Mennonites had a reputation for being good, industrious farmers. And thus, through the course of history, they were almost recruited uh, to settle in different country. Tell us about the Mennonites. <laughs> That's a loaded question. You could have uh, many hours of research on and talking about this, but uh, I was born Mennonite, and uh, I'm I'm proud of that. I have no, no uh, excuses about that. I was fortunate uh, to be born in Kansas in a nice family and a farm culture. Uh, the Mennonites have a long history, roughly... Um, the Reformation in the 1500s, Martin Luther uh, posted his theses, inspired other people to take the religion further. Uh, one of those was uh, um, Menno Simons uh, in uh, northern uh, uh, in the Netherlands, and uh, he developed a following that those people became called Mennonites. His theology was basically uh, adult baptism, inspiration by the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount, and a peace stance, um, non in, in uh, nonviolent peace stance, um, and then uh, there was they were persecuted, looking for opportunities, and in in uh, the Polish uh, uh, or the Prussian people at the time uh, invited them to come to the, their country to help uh, develop the lands for farming. It was also lowlands; many of them had. Uh, the ability to drain the swamps and create fertile, productive ground. So they were invited uh, there. Plus, they had religious freedom. So they, uh, the, the, uh, were off that was an interesting offer. So many migrated from northern Europe, um, low Germany, um, Netherlands, and that to there. Then they farmed there for uh, over several hundred years. 
um, and uh, some of their uh, religious freedoms uh, were being um, curtailed, and uh, they, again, um, were very successful farmers, and there was even jealousy among neighbors saying, how does my neighbor grow such good crops and things like that. So they had this reputation. Um, Catherine the Great uh, in uh, Russia um, was aware of this, and they had acquired lands that were quite undeveloped, kind of the Wild West of Russia. Um, And Catherine invited people to come there, start farming, and her desire was to mingle with the locals and tame them from, from being so wild. Um, and and so they went there, and that was roughly uh, early 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s, till my ancestors, who are a part of that truck, um, arrived there in about 1810, I think, um, and farmed there for about 60 years. In those 60 years, they were allowed to have religious freedom, exemption from mil- military, um, and private schools, and basically had their own communities and really didn't mingle much with the people that had lived there prior. But they did create a fertile um, farming culture, a lot of innovations with uh, uh, what type of crops and how to preserve crops and and influence better growth, things like fertilization and, and summer fallow and things like that. So they had really advanced it along with cre- uh, creating and developing alternative um, uh, hard winter wheats um, that were quite successful in that community. Um, again, um, the uh, United States was developing. The Midwest was, Kansas was the uh, the crown jewel for agriculture at that time, or it was sold as the crown jewel um, with the transportation traveling, changing from ships to railroad. The railroad obtained rights through Kansas, and uh, I'm going to give you the short version, but to have railroads in Kansas, they needed people. To have people, they needed to bring them commerce. To, to For them to do something there, farming was a good thing. The farmers in Ukraine, the climate was almost identical to Kansas, and the soils were similar, maybe even better here in Kansas. So they uh, solicited the Mennonites to come to Kansas. Uh, I can elaborate. That's a very brief well, story. Let, yeah, let's take a, a little bit of setback. I was fascinated to learn, uh, well, uh, many things throughout this book. But when they were in Russia, what they called the New Russia, about 40,000 of them by 1869. And all the people in the Russian Empire at that point was probably not over 75,000 people. So it, it was a big component of it. And that they did grow mostly soft spring wheat so when they went to russia that's really where they were introduced to the hard red winter wheats which they brought with them to kansas which was um really really key in the future to that but when they were looking at a new home as you mentioned they lost the religious freedom or the freedom to not be conscripted into military service and they were looking for um new places to move to a new country or a new home uh the railroads played a big role in that and particularly in your book you talk about a man named carl b schmidt um who was an implement dealer i guess and recruited by the railroads to 
uh, encouraged these Mennonites to move to America. So tell us about that interaction between railroads, uh, Carl B. Schmidt, and what he did to get the Mennonites to Kansas. Well, I think that's probably the most significant part of the book. My favorite chapter is the railroad. I didn't know that when I started doing the research, how exciting that would be. And C.B. Schmidt was a, a, an influent dealer. He spoke German. And Schmidt is a common Mennonite name, but he was not Mennonite. And that's coincidence. Uh, and the, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe recruited him to lure, I guess, um, uh, Mennonites to Kansas. Uh, there was a competition uh, to get Mennonites in the United States um, all all through the Midwest, uh, from Canada down through Oklahoma. Uh, so he, uh, Carl went to uh, Ukraine and talked to local Mennonites and convinced them how wonderful Kansas was. Sometime today I'd like to read the brochure that was written about Kansas. There are just excerpts from it to say why this was so appealing. But they sent... Uh, four ambassadors to the U.S., and they, they toured all over the c- Central Plains, uh, went back and told them how per- things looked, and uh, uh, got 12 additional people to come and survey different properties. And a lot of that was Kansas. The first choice was actually Nebraska, so more so than Kansas. But in the end, due to some changes in uh, in the laws and things available, they really promoted Kansas, and the Santa Fe was significant in that. They were looking for these things uh, when they came looking for land. Cheap land that they could afford, uh, fertile ground, uh, a climate similar to what they were used to and where wheat would grow, Um, looking for uh, help and transportation to get here and to bring things with them uh, just beyond people. Um, religious freedom, uh, where they could uh, believe as they wanted. They wanted the opportunity to develop communities so they could live in tight-knit communities, um, and uh, also uh, economic opportunities. The land was running out in the Ukraine. It wasn't only for religious freedoms, but for opportunities for the next generations to, to expand. Santa Fe bent over backwards, as did the state of Kansas, to get these people here. The Santa Fe Railroad was... Um, given uh, land, uh, or if they were able to build the railroad across Kansas, they were uh, would be given every other section of land about 20 miles on either side of the right-of-way that they had. That was theirs to sell. And um, that was very appealing to the Mennonites that there was a set, a set ground. They had a price. They actually negotiated a better price with mm-hmm. the Santa Fe. And... Uh, uh, C.B. Schmidt was the one that really put this all together. If I could sum up one thing, I wouldn't live in Kansas if it hadn't been for him. Right. Wheat probably wouldn't be what it is without him. him. He is really a significant person. There are other people, but uh, I think Kansas and C.B. Schmidt have a lot uh, to, to be thankful, or Kansas has a lot to be thankful for we, him. From we, him, We talk a lot about Bernard Workington, of course. who was, uh, prior to that group of 12 that came by, he was kind of on his own exploratory mission, and he was the one who stayed behind and, and credited with bringing Turkey Red. But I, I did learn a lot about uh, C.B. Schmidt here, that just how important he was to this whole process. But you mentioned Kansas wasn't the first choice, but the, the key deciding factor is, is what, is something that the Kansas legislature did. That's right. They, uh, um, and I have to, I 
I told you this when we started. I haven't read or I read this book 12 years ago, so some of these details are more vague on me. But it had to do with uh, uh, n- n- freedom of religion and non-conscription to the military. Yeah, I, it, it says that uh, President Grant. They even visited with President Grant, and he wouldn't guarantee that. But the uh, the the Kansas legislature did that, and then that was the deciding deciding point that kind of pushed them over the edge. And and along with C.B. Schmidt, you mentioned that Kansas did reach out, and I know you want to read an expert from this booklet. I was I was going to do this, but it would be better coming. <laughs> it was it would sound better coming from you. But the the marketing of Kansas to immigrants was really aggressive. Actually, uh, they published a booklet titled "A Home for Immigrants: Agricultural, Mineral, and Commercial Resources of the State: Great Inducements Offered to Persons Desiring Homes in a New Country." in the homestead law and i found the booklet to be amazing and i think yeah i i am amazed that this marketing was at its best and it's this is all true but it might be embellished a bit and i'm reading now the climate of kansas is without without exception the most desirable in the united states the winters are short dry and pleasant but a little rain or snow the grass is green in the forest and in the prairies until midwinter and very often herds of horses, mules, and cattle roam at large during the entire winter. At the close of February, we were reminded of, by a soft, gentle breeze from the south that winter is gone. The Grand Prairies, in, interspersed with every variety of flower, and dotted by numerous herds of fine stock, or perhaps a uh, train of immigrants wending their way in search of new homes, assume their usual green robes of carpet and present a scene of superb grandeur. During the summer, there is always a cool, refreshing breeze, which makes even the hottest days and nights pleasant and delightful. The soil is deep, rich, and fertile. In the valleys, extending to the depth of four feet and resting on the clay subsoil, and upon the lowlands, the broad prairies to the depth from one to three feet, resting on a subsoil composed of clay and sand. The richness of soil is demonstrated by the luxuriant growth of prairie grasses, which is yearly produced. Who wouldn't want to live there? Truth and advertising, right? Well, it's true. (laughs) I've lived here for 70 years, and I don't always experience that. (laughs) Yeah, but it was uh, beautifully written, and you're exactly right. Who wouldn't want to live there? I I think that is just amazing. And, yeah, the Kansas legislature passed a law that exempted draft-age men and knights from militia service if they registered as conscientious objectors at the county courthouse. It would be interesting to see if that law is is still on the books. I I was... uh, 18 in the 70s and i went through that process i registered okay. with the county great wonderful yeah that's neat um you also mentioned in the book too that it wasn't just the mennonites that were coming over at the same time but i think listeners in in kansas would obviously have knowledge of the volga germans that were were coming over too um but they ended up more in the western part of the state i believe right uh, if you want to say it ethnically, they were, or religiously, I guess, they were Catholics and Lutherans, uh, particularly, that were uh, invited to central Kansas. And those communities still exist, like at Lindsberg, for example, the Swedish communities. And they were also productive farmers um, being uh, persuaded to come to Kansas from, from many other countries. I think you've been to Ukraine, correct? 
I never have made it, have and not, it doesn't look like I ever will. Yeah, it's going to be tough to get over there these days. It's truly unfortunate the history of Ukraine is not necessarily a happy place. But they did see the similarities between climate, soil type, between their previous home in Ukraine and Kansas. Oh, no doubt about it. I think the the uh, the gentlemen that came out to explore were very knowledgeable on soils and climate and they look for things that would be comparable to Kansas, to the Ukraine, and it certainly is. Even the the aesthetic of the two countries uh, look very similar. Kansas looks a lot like the Ukraine yeah. um, landscape. The railroads also, um, you said, bent over backwards. They actually built homes for the immigrants when they came over and even supplied the wheat seed for their first crop, I understand. Well, um Yes, there was some of that. The traditional stories are how uh, some Mennonites uh, handpick seeds, uh, the plump and, and best seeds, and put them in quart jars or, or larger jars or sacks and put them in their trunks that were shipped over here, um, over the ships and then by the rail from New York. Um, but there were uh, the railroad also shipped uh, wheat over, and Bernard Workentine, who we mentioned already, who is significant in, in promoting... Um, the hard red winter wheat, turkey wheat, turkey red, um, also brought over, I think, 10,000 bushels of, uh, at his own expense, I believe. Um, and, of course, that's by ship and by rail also. And that's really what got it going is that enthusiasm and that uh, financial um, skill to, to start this industry in Kansas. Yeah, I was not aware that the, the adoption of turkey red in Kansas was actually fairly slow. I mean, they were yes. they were growing soft wheat first, and as you mentioned, Bernard Workington, and uh, it's called turkey red because it's a red wheat, and they, they found it in, in Turkey, right. essentially, is, is where they adopted it, and then kind of intermixed it with uh, winter wheat varieties that were growing in Russia. Part of that slow adoption apparently was that the milling industry was just not ready for it. Their their technology was was targeted towards soft wheat, and um, but over time, I think they found out that the winter wheat was a much better quality. Right, that that's very true. Um, of course, the public here wasn't familiar with hard winter wheat. They were familiar with soft wheat. The millers were not familiar with it, and they used prior to the soft winter wheat was typically ground by with millstones mm -hmm. and basically a grinding process whereas the hard winter wheat it took a while before they realized they could uh, use steel rollers that would actually cut and smash the grain and and it wasn't until that was developed which was almost right after the Mennonites got here but uh, you had to grow the the acres of wheat the 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 yields of wheat um, and production of wheat and then the mills had to catch up to it to get to be able to process it, but yes, it was it was high in uh, uh, protein and gluten, and uh, once uh, people discovered it, they they felt it made better bread. But it took it was a slow process, and I th I think there's a misconception of how fast this exploded across Kansas. Mm -hmm. Kansas didn't overnight have a wheat field every square mile. It took many years to to get the the acreage developed. But it truly then did become the most desirable wheat in the world. I think there was there was nothing like it at that point in time. Correct. Um, the things beyond wheat that the Mennonites brought, uh, technology-wise, innovation-wise, uh, fallow. 
I think is is uh, introduced to Kansas also by the Mennonites. Is that correct? Well, I don't know if it was exclusively introduced by Mennonites, but they certainly brought that as a common technology that they would use to to lay the lay the land fallow uh, every other year. Um, there was a oh I don't I don't know if I can quote it accurately, but the essence of it was uh, my my neighbor's wheat looks low looks so much better than mine what do they have with god mm-hmm. you know but it was probably uh things that that the mennonites brought with them not so much technology but skills uh following uh spreading manure on the fields um using their, their livestock to produce to create and, and put the manure on it uh crop uh some crop rotation but it was primarily wheat uh and and just maybe good uh, uh farming conditions knowing how, when to plow and when to disc and when to harrow and when to plant. Um, but it, they came with those skills. And they made an industry explode. Uh, they, they provided what the railroad wanted, which is a commodity, uh, to be able to ship in bulk both east and west. Uh, the milling industry kind of evolved because of this. But prior to that, harvesting and milling wheat was not an easy thing. It's It's been relatively easy only in the past half a century or so but let, let's get into the namesake namesake of your book here leave no threshing stone unturned tell everyone what a threshing stone is if you already know you're in a very esoteric group <laughs> <laughs> probably most bethel college students could tell you I what imagine. one is yeah i'll explain that later probably um but it was a uh for for the process of threshing wheat has been the same now as it was thousands of years ago. The grain farming started about 10,000 years ago, roughly. And back then, um, they would uh, maybe grab grab a stack of heads and beat it against a rock to thresh the wheat. Then And then you have to separate the chaff from the wheat. But that's the same process that the modern combine does. Not technic- Not physically, but cut the wheat, thrash, break the grain out of the heads, and then separate the grain from the chaff. That, that's, that's been consistent from the time when I was a kid on the wheat farm. I'd put some in my hand and rub it together and blow the chaff out. That's threshing right there. It's that simple. But um, uh, the most common, and, and the threshing process was has evolved in almost all cultures in the world. Um, and historically, beyond beating it, uh, it was often uh, you would put it, put the uh, wheat on, or the 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 wheat and, and the, the heads and the and stems in a pile in a circle and run horses over it, and that and the trotting of the horses would thrash the wheat. Um, the flail was another method that was used, where you it's a stick with a, a a usually a leather hinge and a it's like a baseball bat, and you're beating it, trying to knock the grain out. Um, very labor-intensive, um, very slow. Uh, to feed many people, that's maybe not the most efficient. And I don't, I can't say that Mennonites invented the threshing stone, which is what I'll explain in a little bit, uh, but they certainly perfected it over the course of their uh, experience in the Ukraine. The threshing stone is a literally st- stone, usually a limestone, um, it, that is rolled over the grain uh, to thresh it out. The, uh, this takes place on a threshing floor, where, which is typically, a, in, in Kansas anyway, uh, hard-packed dirt, um, and in the Ukraine, 
hard packed dirt that was kept year round to do threshing and threshing could take months. It didn't happen in seconds like it does now, but the wheat would be piled up and this stone would be pulled in a circle uh, over the, the piled up straw and, and wheat and, and threshed out where the grain would fall to, through the straw to the bottom or up to the floor. And then for people with uh, forks and uh, pitchforks and rakes would keep stirring the straw and they'd keep thrashing with this threshing stone being pulled around in a circle by one or two horses or one or several people. And the straw would be thrown to the outside or slowly rotated to the outside. The grain drops to the floor and would be scooted and shoveled towards the center. So then you had a pile of wheat with chaff in it. So the next step in all threshing, still true today, you have to blow away the lightweight stuff to keep the grain. So there, in, initially, it was done with the wind. On the right day, you'd take a shovel and throw the wheat and chaff up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff, and the wheat would fall to the ground. And that's the, the final step of, of threshing, although you don't just leave a pile in, in the field. You have to bag it or put it in a bin or some sort. In the Ukraine, typically, they would bag uh, the wheat and put it in a gunny sack. The gunny sacks would be stored in the attic of a house, so to also create insulation for the winter time. Oh, really? So, and that's also how they would be shipped around. Um, but the threshing stone itself, I have not explained yet. So, whatever you're imagining may or may not be right. Imagine a big piece of stone about uh, exactly uh, um, 30 inches long, plus or minus an inch, and 24 inches in diameter, plus or minus an inch, with most typically seven grooves carved around it. These look somewhat like a gear. So mm -hmm. you're, if you're picturing an end view, it's, uh, it looks like a gear. It's 24 inches in diameter uh, and heavy limestone. Through the middle of this, there's a hole typically drilled and that when an axle would go through, that axle would be supported on the outside by typically two wooden or steel beams that would come around to the front so they could be hooked up to horses. So the horses could... Um, go around and around in a circle, pulling this threshing stone over the over the grain. And this was a significant advancement in productivity. Um, and the Mennonites in, in the Ukraine probably perfected it. It was not exclusive to them. I have found uh, records of threshing with stones like this from uh, uh, Roman times, certainly in China, Australia, um, all over Europe. Um, they existed, but this particular type of threshing stone seems to be the evolution of the Mennonites uh, to this point. Do we know if they introduced it to the United States? If you've ever been to, to uh, George Washington's home, uh, you, you see threshing there was still done by horse hooves, horses walking in circles over a slotted floor. So I'm just curious if if they, in fact, were the ones who introduced, introduced at least this version of a threshing stone to the United States. As near as I can tell. Okay. And uh, to jump to the quick, they were pretty well obsolete by the time they were created here. Created here. Do you want me to tell that part of the story? I, well, I do, but first, let's let's talk a little bit more about the stone itself. So we're talking about 400 to 800 pounds of limestone. You didn't necessarily want to bring this over on a boat. Uh, uh, the uh, I found writings that the the, the railroad and the, boat and the shipping company, the Red Star Shipping Line, did bring them over. Wow. I could not prove that. Yeah. I I think it's all lore. Yeah. And and requoting the same quote over and over from book to book, but I couldn't find any evidence of that. So I assume they they found 
native stone here in Kansas, limestone, what have you, that was soft enough that they could carve and, and just carved them by hand? Yeah, if you put things in perspective, the uh, the Civil War was over Kansas, so it was a state. The railroad was going across the state. To build the railroad, you need railroad beds. And in central Kansas, in Chase County and Marion County, there's excellent limestone quarries for for rubble. But also, uh, that limestone is created in different strata, um, and it was excellent for building bridges and uh, houses. But it was also excellent for building a threshing stone. Um, so uh, the records say, uh, I, I didn't find written record, but history records show that um, when they got here, there was possibly a wooden template of the threshing stone shape that they went to the quarries by most likely in Chase County by Florence, um, and they could quarry out limestone in a in the I think it's called the Fort Riley strata, which was the best dense limestone, and each quarry had masons that were skilled at making bridges and houses, but they also taught them how to make these threshing stones. And apparently some of the pastors uh, that brought the Mennonites here uh, ordered quantities of these dressing stones. And they were essentially mass-produced. And that, that can be proven by the dimensions that are consistent. And the stroke marks of the threshing of the, on the stone are very consistent. But the quarries in Kansas were perfectly suited for creating these stones, which were... Um, uh, masterfully created. I had an estimate from a friend who is a stone carver. Said one person maybe could make one threshing stone in two days. Wow, that's impressive. You did a good job of describing the stone. I was going to say it looks like a, a gear that's been extruded into a cylinder uh, about 29 to 30 inches long. But we, we've got to address the seven teeth. You said without, with few exceptions, each one of these uh, millstones has seven teeth on it. What is the special reason for seven? Okay. I'll answer that, but I have to correct you. It's not a millstone. It's a threshing stone. Threshing stone. Excuse me. That's the, a good point to differentiate. The most though. common mistake. Yeah. I read your book about millstones. Right. right. I didn't write a book about millstones. Right. The other people have written those books. Yeah. Millstone <laughs> would be the flat circle right. grinding stone. Yeah. Sure. So sorry to correct you. No problem. Yeah. There's a, a lot of stories, and it's more fun than it is reality. Uh, why... Almost every one I found had seven ridges on it. I found one in Texas that I think had 10, and I've seen one pictures in China of one that had maybe 100, and some had zero. But almost all Mennonite threshing stones, whether they're in Ukraine or here in North America, which I found some in Canada that also had seven ridges on it. Why seven ridges? Uh, there are multiple theories, and I and and many people, and even one person I interviewed, said that it was because of religious reasons. Seven is a holy number, mm -hmm. and it should remind us of God's greatness. So that's why they picked seven. There could be truth to that. I don't know. Uh, the second reason was uh, uh, if you have seven um, and you're going around in a circle, um, that means you have an odd number, and the next lap you would a, a ridge would hit where a gap would have been. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose scientifically possible, but absolutely impossible to predict. These were horses going around in a random right. circle. Yeah. And the fact that they hit in, the, in another spot is irrelevant because the whole idea of this threshing stone, which I should have said you already, is, is to just knock, knock the grain out, really thump at it. So the thumping action is important. The, the uh, next reason was uh, an odd number so that 
the stones tend to crack and there's an axle hole through the middle. So if if you have a tooth opposite a, a V, cracks usually start wherever there's a V and it's going to take the path of least resistance. So if um, the opposite side has a V notch, it's going to go through the short section. But if it has to go to an odd place, it may make it a little stronger. Mm. Unknown, but I believe that's physically possible. Um, uh, the and I'll jump to what I think the real answer is, is um, the weight of the stone combined with the desired thumping action and the pounds per square inch when that ridge hits the wheat creates about the right amount of shock to the head to knock the grain loose. Um, and I, I think that was probably just evolution of improving year after year. And, and I think the reasons there's seven is because it worked the best. I was I would think that the stone might actually crush the kernels at some point, but that doesn't seem to happen. Well, I guess not. I can't say I wasn't there, but um, w- this isn't threshing on a stone floor or a concrete floor. It's on a dirt floor. Dirt floor. The threshing floor was maybe 30 to 60 feet in diameter, and it was hard-packed dirt, probably had chaff and straw packed in it, so it's kind of like an adobe, and it would be cured all year long. They didn't let it get damage during the off season uh so it it's hard it's a hard reliable surface but it's not concrete Mm -hmm. so if and even i don't even know that it would have packed it into that because it was hard enough for that but probably not hard enough to crack the kernel and if if it did happen it did happen that wouldn't ruin the value of the kernel but that's not what you want when you're threshing in a minute here we'll we'll get to your i i want to talk about your quest uh, to find the threshing stones, but you did mention that as soon as they were introduced, or almost as soon as they were introduced, they were obsolete. Tell right. us that story. Well, uh, the Ukraine wasn't on the cutting edge of uh, retail marketing in in the 18, 1800s, so they didn't necessarily have access to things in other parts of the world they might have had, like equipment in other parts of Europe. Um, but... Uh, so they used the technology they had, and I think uh, it's argued that it was brilliant and or it was uh, foolish. But as soon as they got here, they said, we need to thresh wheat next year. Let's get some threshing stones. And I'm, 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 I don't have a quote I'm quoting. I'm, that just seems to be the interpretation that's most logical because they did order threshing stones from the quarries. And recently, just as recently as last January, I actually found written documentation of that, which I didn't have when I wrote the book, but that's been proven that that they were purchased. I did have one record that 50 threshing stones were shipped by rail to downtown Newton to be shipped to communities to the north, which would be Gossel if you know the community. Uh, So when they came here, they tried to be prepared um, and ordered the threshing stones in advance, not realizing that the threshing machines were available and probably even in Kansas, maybe in in uh, Abilene or Atchison, uh, but they were not, if they knew about it, it maybe didn't seem attainable to them. So they wanted to be prepared. But immediately when when the Mennonites got to central Kansas with a lot of cash um, in hand and gold, I should say, uh, a lot of assets, uh, liquid assets, um, er, the implement dealers jumped on them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's all these people with money, and they need our stuff. Right. So you can just imagine. I, I can't refine my quote, but I, I found that uh, there were the most plows ever sold in one year was in Newton, Kansas. Implement dealers immediately jumped on it. 
uh, and and the technology was there. They were probably steam powered by then. There were also horse powered versions where they could power the threshing machines. And these threshing machines would not be owned by every farmer like like things used to be, where every farmer had their own equipment. But uh, they would have groups of people that would buy the machine and and then hire people to go around from field to field to to thresh the wheat and even moving from the south to the north uh, with the wheat uh, uh, development uh, through the season. So the threshing machines worked fine, and it was much less work than threshing with the threshing stone. So I can prove that not all threshing stones were used. I have found by now, um, I think, 15 threshing stones that have no axle hole. And this could not have been used without an axle hole. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, even before they were finished being made at the at the quarries, they probably abandoned them and people bought them as novelties. So I found many of these threshing stones in people's front yards, some with and some without axle holes. Yeah. Well, that that does lead to you. You had a question that led to a quest. Your question was how many of these stones exist and then how many of them could you find? And, and this book is, is great because throughout the center fold of the book, you, you ID by number these stones by number where they are, how you found them, the backstory on them. So I, I, I think that's really great. Tell us tell us about your quest for the, uh, well, for the threshing stones. Yeah, the book is two stories in one, but uh, who doesn't like a treasure hunt? That's exactly. what it ended up being. Yeah. Uh, and I I asked if some friends of mine, well, I should start with, we inherited, Karen and I, my wife, uh, from her family inherited a threshing stone. We had it sitting in, we have it sitting in front of our house. And I asked, I, I hang out with historians, uh, museum people and, and historians and professors, and uh, I asked details. I said, somebody's got to know more about this than I do. And I couldn't find, other than general basic knowledge, just nobody had really looked into it. So I said, well, I've got to see how many I can find. I asked my friend Brian Stuckey, who was also interested in threshing stones, um, how many do you think there are? And he said, well, maybe a hundred or something like that. And I said, oh, really? You know, I thought they were all across the United States and there would be many thousands. So my quest was to find as many as I could and photograph them and document them. And I actually have an Excel spreadsheet where I have uh, all the threshing stones that I found. I I measured them and uh, photographed them and uh, put a GPS location on it where it was at the time I wrote the book anyway, and the owner and any provenance on it that I could find out about it. In the book, I don't write about everybody's uh, history because I, I wanted to protect their privacy. Some people are, don't want to let everybody know they have one because um, at the time we didn't really know the value. I'm not sure we do now either, but uh, they just didn't want anybody to mess with their stuff. So I, don't, I didn't put any stories in there with names unless I had permission. But I have all that information so that someday um, people beyond me can research that if they like. Um, so I... I used every method I could find. I went to local um, community events uh, and uh, things like threshing days at Gossel, where it's a really a lot of people come together to celebrate the the whole uh, steam engine and threshing process. I went to uh, I got articles written about for me by by different local mag articles. I contacted Marcy Penner, who you may know about, uh, uh, who, who's the the biggest Kansas promoter there probably is. Yes, she is. And she, um, I grew up with her, so I have known her since I was a child. Uh, 
she put the word out, and I I ended up finding some people through that process. Um, and people would well, I had a website, and I and a word of mouth was really the best to find uh, all the uh, places, uh, all the threshing zones I could. And uh, I found them surprisingly only in a four county area, for the most part, which is uh, Marion and uh, McPherson, Reno and Harvey, which is the core of my home turf and the Mennonite turf. Um, but I, I did find them all the way from Texas to Manitoba. Um, and I, if I couldn't go, I had somebody send me a picture. So in the book, I ended up with 100 threshing stones I found, exactly what Brian had proposed, but uh, that's coincidental. I'm sure there's maybe another 100 out there I have no idea about, and I think there's probably several filling ravines that keep the wash right, from, yeah. from developing, and I know of one story where somebody dug one out of a ravine. So um, it, it was fun. I just I had more fun. Since then, uh, I... One one professor of mine, Jim Yonke, said, uh, you realize you're doing this for life. Yes, you are. <laughs> Once you do something, you do it for the rest of your life. So since then, I found about 15 more threshing stones. Uh, that, and, uh, and I actually have two additional ones in my, in my, at my place that were mystery stones. They were from Florence. Everybody told in Florence said they used to be there in front of this big Victorian house, but nobody knew what happened to them. Yeah, and I can, I, this could be a long story, but I'll make it short. But I, I, I got a phone call um, from a, a, the Halstead Museum curator said there's two threshing stones for sale in Wichita. You might be interested. So I went there immediately, left work and went there. And, and uh, Putting everything together, I found out these are the two missing threshing stones of Florence. Oh, I ended up buying them. Yeah. So uh, I, I I finally went full circle on that. But that story or that isn't in the book, but something's happened since then. Uh, you said that these these stones that still exist are used for so many different purposes. You know, for for yard landscaping. One even as a salt lick uh, for cattle. Well, many, many of them as a salt lick. What other unique uses or have you seen for well, these? To put a, turn it on, and you can have these laying on their side like it would be a, a wheel, or you could set them on end, sticking up. And with that, the axle hole is usually pointing vertical. And I've seen lamps put in it. I've seen the American flag put in it. Um, a lot of them, or some of them, with or without threshing, with with or without axle holes, have rings on the top of them, steel rings. And people, they might have set in front of the house and that's where you would tie up your horse when you came to visit. Oh, sure. So they were, that's what those were. In fact, the two that I bought in Wichita have that. Those stones weren't going to move around a lot. So. They didn't. That's why, I don't know how many people know what a salt lick is, but if you know have cattle, you do. These things were so heavy and if you didn't have any other use for them, people would carve out one end uh, just to set the salt block in in the, in the corral for the cattle. It was too heavy to knock over, but it would keep the salt out of the mud. Yeah. Have you have you seen the stones in action, actually doing I, that? I think so. Uh, if in 1974, Gossel had a centennial, and before I knew my wife, but she was there too. There is a video of it being used, but I think um, I, I was... I, I wasn't into threshing stones at the time, but right. I think I saw it being demonstrated. And I'm hoping next year is the 150th anniversary of the Mennonites coming That's to Kansas. That's correct, yeah. So I am encouraging anybody from Gossel that if we can demonstrate that once again 50 years later, that would be a good thing to do. Yeah, that's a 
fascinating story. So uh, the community down there is, is the Mennonite community still exists, of course, and, and farmers who still farm can say they're they're tied to the their Mennonite ancestors who came came over. So just in your in your final words to us, I mean, what does this mean to you, that story, that tradition, that heritage of the Mennonites and the Threshing Stone? I didn't say that the Threshing Stone was adopted as the mascot for Bethel College in, mm-hmm. in the 30s. Some were donated to the first president of the college, and eventually they just uh, were declared the mascot of the college. Well, why would you do that? Why would you want to have a rock as your mascot? Well, and I think this is is true in many ways. The threshing stone represents some, uh, some something that's solid, like like the rock uh, is in the Bible. So it has that connection. But the biggest distinction is, uh, you, well, maybe the, another distinction is it, it's a farming artifact. Mennonites were farmers, and Bethel College is a Mennonite college, so it fit that vision. But more than anything, it represents uh, the uh, the process of discrimination, not discrimination, but separation, separating the weak from the chaff, the discerning process is what I was trying to say. Um, and it's a great symbol for that. We, in as an educating uh, institution, the purpose is to separate or be discerning about how you separate um, your different thoughts and ideas and, and and coming up with your answers. So I think it has a lot of meaning for that. That's great. There's so much more in this book that talks about uh, turkey red wheat, symbolism, Bethel College, um, about wheat itself, uh, cereal grains, and the the history of threshing, and uh, uh, just great information. The book is hard to find. Uh, Glenn has has told us that you're down to about about 10 copies, so we might have to work with him to do another printing of this, but uh, I highly encourage it. I'd, I'd love to spend an hour with you talking about Vernado. I'd, I'd love to spend an hour with you talking about um, your land car. But I, I would like to spend just a few minutes. You're an artist also. Um, the website is? Oh, Glenn Ediger Art. G-L-E-N-E-D-I-G-E-R Art at, dot com. And you use a special technique. Tell everybody about that. Well, I'm now retired, so uh, even before I retired, I knew I wanted to do art. I was an art major in college, but ended up being a design engineer. Um, and and I saw an old hot rod at a car show, a rat rod, that had rust on the top of it. And I could just tell things had been sitting out in the field and made an impression. And being with my mind, I said, you know, that could be an art form. So I tried it. I went and bought a bunch of steel and, and set things on top of it and set it outside for many months at my friend's farm. And... And I got some pretty interesting effects. And so I then added copper and wood and other materials. So I set set these flat sheets out outdoors underneath trees and and uh, in different locations, even into the water. And uh, I let the environment create the art. My son came up with the line, art influenced my nature. So I set it up and let the environment expose it. And then I clean it up and I frame it with reclaimed lumber to... My underlying philosophy behind this, everything we do leaves an impression, and my art represents that. And I've seen it on the website. I'd love to see it in person. It is it is such a unique approach, and, and you're right. I mean, the elements uh, create art every time we see an old barn uh, exposed to the elements, so uh, it, it's I a great story. I have to say my favorite line I've heard since I've done art, 
Uh, apparently, I have a lot of art behind my barn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, but yours is yours is special. It uh, certainly has some uh, form and function to it. Glenn, um, can't thank you enough for visiting with us today. Again, the book is um, "Leave No Threshing Stone Unturned." It is hard to find. They do sell some copies of it at the Mennonite Heritage Museum in Gossel. Uh, is there a way people can contact you, Glenn, if they have any follow-up questions or are interested in that? Yeah, Glenn Ediger at Cox.net. Thanks to Glenn Ediger for joining us on this episode of Wheats on Your Mind podcast. If you have a question or follow-up for this episode of the podcast, please email us at podcast at kswheat.com. I'm Aaron Harries. Thanks for listening.